Welcome to the Business Trendsetter Podcast, where we talk about trends and how to use them to grow your business. My name is Manny Turan. And I'm Adam Hartung. We are Spark Partners. We're here every week to discuss trends as they pretend to, to business. But every once in a while, we talk about current events in the world that may not initially be tied to business. And that, of course, this week is the conflict happening in Israel with the Hamas. And there's a whole mess there. Uh, we're not going to really talk too much about the political implications or some of the the, uh, the reasons why on the political scale, but I think there's some lessons to be learned with respect to how you run your business and some of these mentalities that we get into when, as you mentioned during our pre-meeting, Adam, we get the we are right mentality, which stands for we uh, war, right? We are right. So let's, let's kick off the, the podcast there, Adam, and, and then we also have some other topics we can delve into. Uh, just regarding how, um, you know, that entrenched mentality, we call it lock-in, can hold you back and, and really is a, a pervasive cancer that can bring down an entire company, much like uh, like Disney is suffering right now and, and others. So go ahead, Adam. <laughs> okay. So again, I, I, I don't believe that war and business are great analogies, um, but what we are seeing is a lot of conflict. And that conflict is now apparent in the Russia and the Ukraine. It's apparent now in Israel uh, to a greater extent because of the battles that are happening. It's apparent in the sword uh, saber rattling that's happening in China regarding Taiwan. Uh, so we're seeing you know, a lot of conflict. And then we see that come back at us in the United States where we have, you know, the, the Speaker of the House last week was, was fired by a handful of people who, uh, you know, just were absolutely set in their mind into to one idea. And so, you know, here, for the first time ever in the history of America, they actually, you know, forced out the Speaker of the House of Representatives in the United States Congress. Um, and, and so these conflicts, you know, one can sit back and say, what's the trend here and what's going on? And the trend is that we've started to say the conflict is good. We, we sort of, if you go back into terms of kind of how we've been saying it as a society, um, the idea of getting along and cooperating um, was was the way Congress worked. You know, people did their best to try to govern, make things happen at, at the federal level, the state level, and usually the city level. You didn't see people wearing um, a lot of this stuff on their sleeve. Okay, we tried to avoid that for a long time, uh, but I think it was Newt Gingrich who came along and said, "No, he he saw politics as war." And so he started trying to say, oh, this conflict is good. And so having conflict is good. And now that, that trend has kept building and building and building. Now where we're saying to people, hey, it's okay to just be in conflict and to not try to resolve, not try to get along. So if that's the trend we're on, the question becomes, how do I deal with that? You know, how could I try to move forward? And I, th and I do think that it's possible. And uh, I think that where people are failing today is they're, they're trying to say, well, I've got a point of view, you've got a point of view, one of us has to win. And, and, that, and that is going to lead to war, mental warfare, you know, fighting and conflict. So what do we try to do to avoid that, I think, is we can start to realize how do we develop these really strong points of view? And, and how can we address those strong points of view? And when I wrote the book, Create Marketplace Disruption, back at the turn of the century, I identified these as lock-ins. And what I said was people go through life and they start to lock in on things and they start to say, well, this is the way the world works or the way things happen. And I'm just going to take that for granted. And it becomes an assumption that they don't challenge. 
And some of the, you know, it could be the church they go to. It could be what part of the country they want to live in. It could be ranking different uh, societies or different uh, forms of government. But people lock in on those things. And what was interesting was that that perception then fell over into business. And what we saw start happening in the 1980s, very much with like In Search of Excellence by Tom Peters and uh, Built to Last and Good to Great by Jim Collins, was this notion of, hey, there's just one way to run a business. And what you have to do is be operationally excellent. you got to go out there and get things done. And to get things done, you get very narrow. If you think about those books, they didn't say go off and look at the world and figure out what to do. They said, decide what you want to do. Decide the one thing you want to do and then be very good at it. So you had the hedgehog concept, as Collins liked to determine, put a name to it. And then they would say, now go practice that. And, and to the point of everybody in the company focuses on how to better, faster, cheaper at that. And, and if they don't, if somebody stands out and says, well, I want to look at something else, then you say, OK, you're not on the bus. So you're out of here. We'll get rid of you. Which now what happens yeah. again is you're not allowed to have conflict. You're not allowed to have a disagreeable voice in the organization. It's just one way of getting there. So, you know, and some of these are so obvious, but yet we don't think about them. So think about, for example, sacred cows. Okay. Sacred cows, when I was doing my research, came up as one of the most obvious and most prevalent forms of a, of a problem led to business failure. So Kodak is one of the great examples. You know, the sacred cow in Kodak was filmed. You know, they had invented the brown, the, the right. head film, and then they figured out how to make these really, really cheap cameras. They weren't great, but they were okay because they let a hobbyist take the picture. And then, and then you could take that film and you could send it back to Kodak and they could make the pictures for you. So pictures went from something, you know, in 1900, if you got your picture taken once, you're a lucky person. The vast majority of people never had their picture taken. Right. But by the year 2000, well, by the year 1975, you know, you were used to people taking roles of film, right? So film was the sacred cow. Right. So now when you get an alternative to the sacred cow, which was digital photography, the organization rises up. They says, oh, wait a minute. We're in the film business. This is, and it's not just, is that a good idea or a bad idea? It's a, that's a threat to the sacred cow. And right. so consequently, we are not going to address that threat. We're not going to do, we're going to, we're not going what's, to say. What's crazy with Kodak is, they're the ones who invented the digital camera. Yeah. They had it in their, in their stable. Yeah. Well, Xerox Park, Xerox had, you know, had taken the xerography machine, this technology xerography, and, and they had made it popular. And so that everybody had one of these copiers in their, built, in their building. Most people had a copier on every floor. It was very, very popular. But the business model they had was you didn't really pay for a copier. You didn't buy a Xerox copier. You let them install it. And then you had a click meter that counted the number of pieces of paper that went through it. And what happened was a guy came in every couple of weeks to service the machine. He'd you know, take it apart, clean it up, everything else. And he'd look at the click meter and he got built based upon the click meter. They made so much money selling clicks that they bought a research center in Palo Alto, California and named it Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, or Xerox Park, as it was called. Put a guy in charge of it with a PhD named John C. Lee Brown. So tell us the future of printing or the future of copying and printing. Then after four or five years, they developed what we now call desktop publishing. They figured out how to use a mouse. They figured out how to hook a printer up to a computer. There's a whole lot of things they did. And what you see is what you get, which we take for granted now in terms of it's not looking at a green screen with a bunch of a computer lingo. You actually can see what it is you're trying to do. All this technology was stuff that was very fledgling. Some of it they had to invent a lot of it. They had to innovate the invention into something usable. So now they say, hey, look, this is what desktop publishing will look like. It's going to be the next big thing. 
And the, and the leadership at Xerox said, wait a minute, where's the click meter? And John C. Lee Brown said, I'm sorry, what? He asked me to tell you what the future of printing was going to be. And yeah. I said, you don't understand, we sell clicks. I don't understand, you know, what are we going to do with this thing? It doesn't have a click meter on it. That was a sacred cow, right? And we always like to right. remind people that sacred cows are called sacred cows because we just take them for granted. And I really didn't understand this as well as until I went to India. And the first time I was in India and I was in a cab and we were plodding along in this cab. And, and the reason we were plodding along when I got up there was because there was this cow sitting in the road. And the roads in India are pretty bad anyway. But the net of it was everybody had to drive up and drive around this cow. Okay. And so there's all these unemployed people in India. There's other people on the side of the road. So I said to the taxi driver, I said, you know, given the situation in India, why well, you could pay 20 people to stand by every cow. And you could honor the cow and you could brush the cow along and keep them out on the road. And he said, what? And I said, and I told him again. He said, what? And then I realized what, that I, was, I might as well have been talking Swahili. That cow was sacred. How dare I say that somebody would tell that cow to get off the road? How dare I say right. that any 20 people could try to usher, no matter how much sense it made to me, as a, as a non-Indian, as a non-Hindu, it made sense to me that we could worship our cow and move it along. To him, it was like, oh my gosh, you're threatening the sacred right. cow. A sacred cow can go wherever it wants. That's why sacred cows are hard to deal with in organizations is because typically we get so busy enshrining them and, and elevating them that we, we don't even think about the alternative and we see anybody who talks about it as being, you know, a really bad person. Yeah, and what's crazy about some of these lock-ins is they they come out sometimes and they seem like they're a really good thing. You know, operational excellence, you know, hey, I just bought this big old commercial building. Hey, I just bought this new tool, $100,000 tool. Whatever it is, I mean, there's a double edge, right? You can have this tool and it could make you lots of money, but in a downturn, if the market shifts, it can become a liability. Well, and I think that, uh, you know, some of these things, the, the way of thinking have uh, have a way to lock you into to uh, success to opportunities to growth and to uh, you know taking your business to the next level and and certainly we saw that in retail you know when Amazon came along and it developed electronic commerce it was pretty crappy in the early days not a lot of people used it, it wasn't a, a very efficient way you ordered a book you got it two weeks later um, but what happened was they kept improving it right and so the the sacred cow in retail was Location, location, location. I mean, you got to have the store someplace where the people are. Then after that is merchandise, having the right stuff on the shelf so that people get get taken care of. And then the third thing was having service in the store. Right. So that was kind of that was retail as people knew it. And so when somebody said, "Well, I could buy it online," like what? What is buying online? How would you do online? So the the sacred cow here was you have to have a store, right? But then that leads to the second most common uh, thing that gets you bound up in your head so that you're ready to uh, have a lot of conflict. And then that's not invented here. So whenever they were looking at this whole idea of electronic commerce, the issue was that, hey, it wasn't invented by a retailer. It was invented by somebody who didn't have anything to do with retail, right? It's this guy over here on the side who's uh, you know, kind of a techie, but he came out of investment banking and this is internet stuff. And we don't really see how that applies to us. And, not invented here. And that to this day is the problem because we saw that Toys R Us, when they got, had money, when it borrowed money to try to uh, keep itself going um, uh, 10 years ago, they put, kept putting it into the store. They didn't ever really go develop an online environment. They didn't say, hey, let's close half the stores and really get aggressive about online. Even Walmart, 
world's biggest re traditional retailer, the world, the yeah. U.S.'s largest employer at one point, they said, you know, when this, they're confronted with electronic commerce, they, they tried to push it off. Then when they bought Jet to get into electronic commerce, their number one issue was, oh, hey, look, we'll use uh, Jet and this technology to try to have people place orders and then pick them up in the store. So, in other words, they didn't invent it. Electronic commerce wasn't invented by them. And so, consequently, there's a lack of willingness to adopt the new technology. Why would I want to go that direction when I didn't have anything to do with invented it, inventing it or being part of right. what made me great? So, the, the notion of a sacred cow often breeds this, this idea of not invented here and the kinds of problems that that, that creates. And, you know, can think about companies like uh, McDonald's. With you know McDonald's selling hamburgers and Big Macs, and you sit there and say, "Well, they've been selling big these these products for 50, 60 years." You know, you don't see an upgrade in the menu. Well, why not? Because all the products that we see in other locations, like at Chipotle or somewhere else, not invented here. A lot of people don't remember that Chipotle was a tiny little operation out of Colorado when McDonald's bought it, and they bought another right. little business called Boston Chicken. And so at one point you had McDonald's and it had Boston chicken and it had, which is now Boston market and it had Chipotle's. And then as time went along, they said, Oh, look, these don't sell hamburgers. They're a different business. And they sold them out. And both Chipotle's and Boston market grew substantially, you know, and were much more profitable, but, but they didn't sell hamburgers, right? They didn't sell yeah. hamburgers. And so it was kind of like, ah, you know, and, and that business was not invented here. They invented that somewhere else and we bought it, but hey, we're not going to learn from it. We're not going to adopt it. We're going to kind of keep it on the side and then eventually we push it back out the door and it's gone again. So that's another one of those uh, uh, lock-ins in our heads that we you know it's yeah. our sacred cow. And, 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 and hey, I didn't invent it, so maybe I should, I should not deal with it. Yeah, and I think uh, if you want a, uh, an exhaustive list of all of our um, thoughts on uh, – lock in how to get around it we've got a little mini course called unlock growth on our website you guys can check out uh, it's not very expensive 100 bucks yeah but uh but adam so let's let's shift the focus a little bit in uh, a conversation about that we had about two and a half three years ago when there was a big shuffle at disney and talk about lock-in so this is like the ghost of lock-in right because uh disney was locked into its, its mode of thinking they brought in a new ceo um, Iger stepped down and the CEO started making some good momentum and uh, he got basically pushed out. And then all that growth that they had amassed, all the momentum, all the unlock of the lock-in that had happened was almost reversed. So let's get your thoughts on that. Well, I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm struggling now to get the name, but you're right. Two and a half, back when the pandemic started and Iger had left Disney and his hand appointed successor takes the job. And for the life of me, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. And so, but anyway, we looked at that and we did a, our first podcast and I said, man, this is going to go bad. This guy comes out of amusement parks. Amusement parks are not on trend. The whole future is going to be about streaming and you know, where the, the entertainment business is headed in a new direction. So, you know, uh, the, the, the going to an amusement park to see Snow White is going to be grandparents and, you know, a couple of kids. But, you know, 
it's not it's nothing this doesn't have the pull that it had many years ago when Walt Disney started it and when theme parks were big. I mean I can remember when Six Flags was this huge organization really growing, right? And a lot of people were moving that way, but theme parks are just not a big deal anymore. And so it's kinda like, oh man, it's what a bad guy for the job. Also, they're in the movie making business, but I'm not sure quite what that means for you anymore, uh, to be in the movie making business as content was clearly headed in the direction that that uh, that uh, Netflix was going right, and in that we hey we don't just do a television show once a week. We create a whole bunch of of, uh, of shows and then we put them out there, and you can binge watch them or deal with them however you want, right? And so Netflix was changing behavior, like oh man, they put the wrong guy in the job. But it wasn't. But about six months after that, the- Bob Bob Shapek, by the way, that's name. Thank you, thank you so much for looking that up. And so. Uh, six months after that, we had another podcast in which I had to eat my words because I said, you know, his background looked all wrong, but look what he did. When the when the um, pandemic hit, he didn't stick to his guns. He quickly shut down the amusement parks. He quickly said, oh, look, that's, that's a business that I'm struggling to grow. It's not doing all that well. <clears throat> and what I had to do is take advantage of this opportunity, shut it down, and I could get federal money to keep paying my employees and while well, I rethink my strategy. The second one was he said, hey, look, quit making movies because, you know, the future of movie making blockbusters, the whole blockbuster approach to movie making where I'm going to make a movie and then I got to go put it in all the theaters. And we have an opening night of one hundred million dollars or a billion dollars or whatever it is. That blockbuster is getting harder and harder to pull off. And, I'm, you know, George Lucas films and there's all these other people out there that's making that really, really difficult. And, and it's not a very profitable business. And so he put everything into Disney Plus. It was like, oh, man, we're going to get this launch. We're going to go after Netflix. We're going to go after subscribers. He made it dirt cheap, five bucks. We really started signing people up. And he said, look at my library. Look at all the content I have. And while you're sitting at home, watch my content. Right. And for the first time, Netflix looked like it was at risk. I mean, here this company had grown. They owned the, mid, the business. They owned the, the home entertainment market and streaming. And it was like, oh, man, oh, man, are they going to get hurt? And sure as the world, Disney Plus grew like crazy. And then what happened was the board of directors let his ears listen to Iger. And he came in and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. This isn't what Disney stands for. And Disney Plus is losing money. Now, Netflix lost a boatload of money before it got big enough. Uh, Amazon lost a boatload of money before it got big enough. You know, this is not unusual right. that you lose a lot of money in the early days, of, especially if you're number two and you got to catch a number one. You got some resources poured in there while you're still relevant, while you still can, while you got the money to try to chase down and try to make this happen. But then what, what occurs? Iger gets the board and says, hey, wait a minute. You know, this this isn't what we do. That's Netflix's business. And here's what we do. You know, we, we invented the amusement parks. We invented Disney. Let's get back to what we know. So the attack on the uh, sacred cow, the amusement parks, the blockbuster movies, they throw Chapek out the door. They put Iger back in. And where are we now? Stocks at a terribly low price. It's fallen dramatically, right? Well, why? Well, you know, amusement parks aren't back the way they were in 1965. That was never going to happen, right? Yeah. And the uh, uh, movie making, well, first of all, let's now go to streaming. He immediately raises the price. He says, oh, my, we're losing money. We can't stand to lose money. Okay, so you're going to come out number two in an innovative area 
and you haven't got your legs under you yet here, and you're going to start raising price. Well, they did, and of course, they lost a lot of subscribers. The Netflix shoots right back up to the top. It picks subscribers back up again. It's got all its content being made all over the world, and it's making it totally differently. And so consequently, now when the, uh, the actor strike and the writer strike hits, Disney gets shut down because they're locked in, locked in to the old way of doing business, the blockbuster mentality of doing business. And so they don't have any business while Netflix keeps going. And they got their big library, but they got people making content in Europe. They got people making content in Asia. They're bringing content in from Korea, bringing content in from all other places in a different format, right? It's not the blockbuster format. It's the lots of quantity format pick what you want to see format. And so now Disney finds itself in a horrible situation and it's got a, uh, you know, one of these uh, uh, entities coming after it on the board of directors, buying up stock, talking about that it's going to throw out the board, get a new board, all gone the wrong way. But, but what happened? Well, the sacred cow reared its ugly head. Who's Disney? Where's Disney? Where have we been? Number two, the lock-in to the yeah. financial model, some preconceived notions about whether or not you can survive losses. Well, we do this all the time when we're working with people. Long-term, what matters is your revenue growth. Revenue growth, revenue growth, revenue growth. Your earnings may suffer from time to time. You can live through bad earnings. You cannot live through bad revenues. You're getting out of step with the market. So now what we see is Disney's losing its revenue growth. It's focusing on profits, and it's probably shooting itself in the foot all being caused by locking in to the way Disney used to be and not being ready to become an entirely new, different company with a different cost model. Yeah, and I think I, I told you, Adam, that initially the reason that I, I had built this company as Terra and I grew it quickly and then it it all kind, kind of came crashing down because of that lock-in mentality that, that I was on, you know, I'm a practicing entrepreneur, right? I'm out here doing it now. And at the time, I, I really wanted to go in a different direction. And I felt as though the market was pulling us in a different direction. But I had some of my board members say, hey, stick with your core. Go back to what you've been, what made you successful. Walk away from those shiny objects. And what would have been useful uh, at the time is for an exhaustive, really a step back and looking at, okay, what is the, where is the market really going? What's holding me back? And it turns out that my own success was holding me back and that's what ended up bringing me down and which is fine. It's all lessons learned. But I think what's interesting is, you know, a lot of small and medium sized businesses, they don't even know what they don't even know. I mean, there's that, you don't know what you don't know and that's kind of biting them in the butt. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one of my whipping boys and this is always JP Morgan Chase and, you know, uh, it turned, I, Went to business school, Jamie Diamond. So at the Harvard Business School, your first year there, you every you put into a section, you and about seventy five other people, and you go to a classroom and you sit in that classroom for three classes a day every day, and instructors come and go. <clears throat> so your first year there, you get to know seventy five people really, really well, and the whole rest of your class, the other seven hundred people, you <clears throat> interact with intermittently. Second year is more of a traditional way of, of classroom. Jamie and I were in the same. Uh, section, section I, class of 82. And so I sat in class, three classes a day, five days a week with Jamie for an entire year. So, you know, I know the guy and, you know, kind of watched his career go along. And, you know, I could say that his alumni, nice guy, nice enough guy. And he's done really well for the business school. And he's made a lot of generous donations, uh, philanthropic donations over time. 
But the guy is stuck on how banking ought to be done. <laughs> He's stuck in ideas like, you know, a decade ago, he tried to launch a whole bunch of new uh, branches. Long after branches ceased to make any value for customers, and now he's all into the you know get everybody back into the office. Then he lives in New York. He's got a Park Avenue apartment. He's got a house in Connecticut. And probably takes a helicopter when he's in Connecticut to get back into the office. And he doesn't think of commuting the way other people do. That maybe have to take an hour and a half bus ride from New Jersey in order to get into the office. And what he also misses is the fact that where we're headed is that artificial intelligence is going to allow computers to be able to assess your credit worthiness, your likelihood of repaying a loan. They'll be able to ask you, why do you want to borrow the money? Where are you going to put the money? They'll look at how you spent money over time. And, and in a very short period of time, AI will be able to say the credit worthiness of that particular loan for that person. And that we're going to be far more dependent upon that AI engine and, it, and its ability to make loans. And it'll do it so fast and so productive. And it, you know, it's really a sustaining innovation to apply AI to that task. And the last thing you're going to need are more loan officers, because at the end of the day, one loan officer could sit there and just stamp these things as fast as AI could pump them out. And that's really where we're headed with banking. And, and as far as deposits, I mean, who really thinks about deposits? I, I can't remember the last time I went into a bank with a check. Yeah, I was going to ask, when was the last time you went to a, a bank and have you been into a Chase bank recently? Uh, no. And, and I mean, the reason is anytime I can get a payment of any sort, I always ask for it to be electronic. I don't want to have to go to a branch. I don't want to have to take the time to do that, right? So I do everything electronically. I do all my transfers, my bill payments, all that electronically, you know, and 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 I'm and I'm not a young man, right? So consequently, I know that there are a lot of people that are quicker and sharper at doing this stuff than I am. And but what do we have there at JP Morgan Chase? A lot of building, a lot of assets, a lot of tradition, and a lot of I think old-fashioned thinking about banking where banking's been. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think J.P. Morgan will, will survive because to have a good, strong banking system, you do have to have foundational banks that have plenty of reserves. And we see when we get financial crises, like we did in 2009 with the collapse of the mortgage industry, and we almost saw a year and a half, a year ago, when they when uh, Jerome Powell raised interest rates and started to see banking collapse, you need big, strong banks for the to execute on keeping the banks to keep the, the 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 banking structure functioning in a regulatory way. But what you, you don't need, what that doesn't mean, is you're going to make a lot of money at it. Just because you're a big foundational bank, you probably could pay the CEO, you know. Hundred million dollars a year—that's okay because you got a lot of cash flow coming in and out. But is it going to provide great careers for people? Is it going to be the kind of an organization that's going to grow, and or, or is it going to be monolith like like a railroad, right? And what's going to happen? What what happened to the railroads? And I see it much more headed down the route of being the railroads. They're there. We need them. We never interact with them anymore. You know, it's just it, from a yeah. consumer point of view, it's almost needless business. It becomes part of the business environment. That has to be there. And I think that's where we're headed with banks. So it's the same idea of being right. locked in, right? It's getting, I think, getting getting J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, the, and those big banks in trouble. And why they're not, you know, no place that I would say I'd tell somebody, I wouldn't tell a young person, yeah, go there to start your career. I definitely wouldn't. I'd, I'd say go into the no. fintech business. I went in, so the reason I asked about if you've been into a Chase bank, there's a, a kind of a, a famous architect that designed this beautiful Chase bank. Uh, not more than a mile from here. And I went in there for, I had a deal with something. I'm not a, a Chase member anymore, but I went in there and there was um, eight teller stations and there was one teller open and there was a big machine in the middle that did most of your transactions. So it was like an inside of this bank ATM. 
you could get, you know, change money, you can get a deposit, you can do everything, you could drop coins in the slot. And I thought to myself, like this beautiful building is just, it's a, it's a relic. It's a and then uh, Tucson had an, an, uh, a very old Wells Fargo downtown. And one of the, I mean, it's, I want to say it might be a hundred years old. It was downtown. They finally closed it. Same reason. No one was ever there. Yeah. I mean, we're in the midst of big changes with uh, post-pandemic, how people are going to work, big demographic shift, right? Young people, there's not enough workers. Uh, think, for example, the other trend right now, strikes. Is that a trend? Yes, it's a trend. It's not a fad. Why is it a trend? Because there's, for years, the baby boomers meant there were all these people looking for jobs, and so the, the unions couldn't develop any strength. Whenever they tried to develop strength, you know, people were there to replace them. Like, I'll take that job, I'll take that job, I'll take that job. Well, now, the boomers are dying, they're retiring, there's not enough workers, so the workers have more voice. And so with more voice, what are they saying? Hey, we're not going to work for the way our parents did. My, my son literally had a conversation with me a few months ago in which he tried to ask me why I worked so hard my whole life, why I did all this stuff. And I was trying to explain to him, and he was kind of like, yeah, I ain't going to do that. I'm not going to go there. It's not going to happen for me. And, and, and he was just like, he already made up his mind. I'm not going to work like that. And he's right. He won't have to. He won't have to. Even if we open the doors to immigration, it's going to take a decade to try to balance the system in our country. And that's still not going to take care of the problems that you got in China and Europe and, and you know, Germany and a lot of other countries. So consequently, we have to start thinking very differently, right? And if we, if we try to make decisions today the way we've thought in the past, then that's going to get us into trouble. We have to be aware of the world and the trends that are happening today. And, and the biggest way to do that is to start to say, look, when I'm talking to somebody and it's clear that we have a conflict, let's get back to where are we locked in? Where am I locked into my thinking? Where are you locked in on your thinking? How did you come to that? When did you lock in on what assumption? When did you lock in on? And then we can start to say, oh, so fundamentally, this is where we saw things different. Now, does, is there any data out there that would say one of us, that, that would say which direction is most likely to happen? Which way is the trend likely to happen? So if I'm, I have some recent conversation with people asking, is, are, are these unions and these um, uh, strikes going to become, continue to become popular? My answer is yes. It's a trend. It will continue to go down that direction. And they were like, well, no, it can't. It can't. Look how badly unions have performed for the last 35 years. And I said, yes, but look at how the demographics have changed. When you go back 40 years ago, you got the start of the boomers. Now you got the end of the boomers. So, yes, you can see the trend was going to be against unions for 25 years. But now we can see that we're in the side where it will balance out and it will favor the unions. And that's where we should be using the trends and the trend data to help us make decisions, not where we've locked in. And we tried. And, then the, and to me, the answer is. Conflict isn't, that kind of conflict isn't good. If you've got a point of view and i got a point of view and we've got to make a decision, and it's an important decision, let's understand why we each have a point of view. If we can get down to the roots of how, why we have that point of view and we can then isolate the trends, we can let the trends lead us to a decision that both of us will probably come out much better off. Very well said, Adam. We'll talk to you next week. Until then, cheers.